0: The 8th Circuit Network. We make things. Put them in your brain.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. I'm your DJ, Kyle.
0: And I'm your DJ host, Peter.
1: DJ slash host, Peter.
0: That's something we've already covered.
1: Yes, but I like referring to you as that.
0: Okay. So yes, welcome to Funk Radio. We bring you all your favorite Funk hits. Today we thought we would actually touch on one of the subjects that we said in a previous episode that we wanted to talk about, because we seem to have that habit of saying, oh, we should talk about this later on. And then we, and then do, we do. But now we are doing it. Something interesting about music in general at, at this time, in the 70s particularly, Major record labels like Motown, for example, they had these huge lists of famous artists with ch- chart topping hits. I mean, they made some of the most famous songs of all time, really. But the backing music f- for these songs, people don't really think about it. But these record labels have these whole studio bands, which are basically mega groups of musicians that play the backing music for pretty much all of their songs. It's just so they have someone in house. If they need someone to play music, I mean, then there you go. You have a whole group of people.
1: But yeah, today we actually want to explore the work that some of these bands who really were an essential part of the, especially the Motown scene, but really uh, the soul and funk scene in general, and really how just how influential they really are, but how really a lot of people don't know that these bands were the ones that really created some of these famous sounds, like the Motown sound, the Philly sound, Memphis sound. They just think, you know, these artists that sang on these tracks, you know, just everything came out of their head, and that's not necessarily true.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'll mention something, because, like, let's just say, for example, People Know Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think someone who isn't that educated in music might just think, oh, you know, Marvin Gaye wrote this song and sang it and did all the music for it, and they just released it on Motown. But, I mean, when you really think about it, you know, someone different is writing it, someone else is performing it, in this case, Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. But then also all the backing music for that. I mean, he's not doing all the instruments in the background, obviously. Yeah. I mean, he's basically just a singer. So the, these groups really are basically right there in your face for all these songs that we all know, but you don't really think about who that is, which I find kind of cool. Yeah. But I mean, not not the, not cool that we don't know them, but cool <laughs> that it's something we can learn about today. Indeed.
1: But yeah, one of the one of the first um, house bands that we investigated is this group called the Funk Brothers, and they were the nickname of, a, of the Motown house band that performed the backing music for basically almost all Motown recordings from, like, 1959 till they moved to L.A. in 1972. So, what, 23
0: years? Question, did the, did they leave Motown
1: then, if they moved to L.A.? Yeah, they, I think they left Motown to, you know, move to the L.A. scene because that's kind of a part of where the soul and genre was migrating to. Mm. In the '70s, especially the disco and whatnot, that's all that originated in the LA area. Mm. So I'm sure they moved out there to get on that. scene. That's cool. But it's funny because the Funk Brothers are basically fairly unknown because house bands weren't actually credited on songs until Marvin Gaye released his single "What's Going On" in 1971, and then after that, Motown started crediting them because of how I guess how popular that song was, or maybe the internet. They were probably fighting for their right to get credited for a while, I assume. But it's kind of a shame because they what they did music for 20 years and weren't credited until a year before they said, screw this, move to L.A. <laughs> but yeah, they, they're really unique because they're probably the biggest unknown house band, I guess I should say. Because just as Peter was saying before, how many different just amazingly famous artists came out of Motown And they basically created the musical backing for all of these famous artists. Mm. It's funny, there's a documentary that I stumbled across called Standing in the Shadow of Motown that is actually about the Funk Brothers. Mm. And the tagline for the film is this unknown band did the music for more number one hits than like Elvis Presley, The Beatles, Rolling Stones combined. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Because they were just attached to so many different groups, which is pretty insane thing. And yet, still today, people don't know about them.
0: I watched like the first 30 minutes or so of that movie. I didn't watch the whole thing yet, but it's actually very interesting.
1: It is. It's, I mean, it's interesting in a, in, a, in a sad sort of way. Because I mean, not because they really, throughout most of their lives, they never got the credit that they very sorely deserved. Yeah. And now they're all old men, the ones that are left, I guess. It's funny, because... With the Funk Brothers, the sounds that they produced that basically became the Motown sound, they utilized a lot of really unusual techniques for the time. For instance, on a lot of songs, they actually would have multiple drummers that would play over each other, and they would just either put it on like the left or right uh, track, or they would just mix it and like make it sound like it was one drummer, but like have more complexity to it. Mm-hmm. I know on Marvin Gaye's What's Going On?, they actually had three drummers in that song.
0: Oh, wow, really?
1: Yeah, which wow. is pretty insane. And then it's funny because on, because they also um, did the backing for The Temptations, arguably one of the most famous bands at that time. Mm-hmm. The, on The Temptations' song, It's Growing, one of the percussionists for the band, Earl Van Dyke, actually played a toy piano, <laughs> like a child's <laughs> piano, not even like a, a real one. Cool. So I guess they liked the sound, I don't know. That's cool. They did the backing for like Marvin Gaye, like you we were saying before, Martha and the Mandela's, Diana Ross,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: Temptations. Basically, in the especially in the 60s, they defined what became Motown, and they defined that sound more than any of these, or at least just as much as any of these uh, singers did.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's pretty pretty amazing. It's pretty, pretty crunchy. Mm-hmm. But just to give you guys a taste of what the Funk Brothers can do, we want to play the song you keep me hanging on by diana ross correct
0: yes diana ross and the supremes
1: diana ross and the supremes you keep me hanging on because it's it's got a really unique sound but it definitely is a good definition of what the motown sound is and remember that basically all the music that isn't diana ross singing is them so let's take a listen
0: Yeah, definitely one of my favorite song. probably my favorite song actually by diane ross and the supremes it's, a good, it's such
1: good it's got such like a, a intensity to it you know
0: yeah it's pretty cool so we are going to move on from motown and go on down to memphis tennessee with high records and the the house band that they had there was called the high rhythm section now high records was the quintessential label for the memphis soul sound of the 70s now this was really a significant you could say area for, for soul as it was developing during this time, because a lot of people know, for example, like the Philly sound in Philadelphia. I mean, that was a major thing with, you know, Teddy Pendergrass and the OJs and stuff like that. But down in Memphis, we had more of like a Southern influence, which was a little bit, I think, a little bit more blues uh, influence and stuff like that. The high rhythm section, they were made up of three brothers, Charles Hodges on organ, Leroy Hodges on bass, and Mabin Teeny Hodges on guitar. And they were also joined by drummer Howard Grimes. Also, I was reading that they actually, from time to time, they would work together with other influential people, especially from Stax Records, which was another major label in Memphis. Um, I think High Records stayed, kept going a little bit longer. I think Stax eventually kind of dropped off. But those were the two really big Memphis labels during this time. An interesting quote I read was by Memphis music historian Robert Gordon, and he said, between stacks and high records, the music moved from the dance floor to the boudoir, and everything changed. The lights got turned down, and it got a little softer and a little warmer.
1: I think that's I think that's really true, because as we were discussing with Motown, Motown music was very upbeat and definitely lent itself to um, dancing, even really before disco did. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the artists to come out of Memphis, and especially high records like Al Green, Otis Clay, they were much more sensual, and they basically... Help define, I guess, the uh, softer soul genre
0: that many people associate lovemaking with. And we have we have actually discussed lovemaking in a previous episode. If you don't know that,
1: you discussed lovemaking in every episode.
0: <laughs> yeah, I completely I completely agree with that quote. Yeah, it's kind of a, kind of a, a nice way of putting it. So, in terms of songs that they've worked on, two songs that we've played previously on the show. One was uh, "Let's Stay Together" by Al Green. And another one, uh, I Can't Stand the Rain by Ann Peebles, which we played even more recently. Mm-hmm. Those those are two songs where the high rhythm section actually played, backing on that. And we didn't mention that, obviously, because I, I personally didn't know that. But now we do. Anyway, uh, a clip of a song that we can play that has them in the background pretty prominently is Al Green's Here I Am, Come and Take Me, which is another one of his really famous per- hits. Personally, probably
1: one of my favorites, top two.
0: In For- general or Al Green? For Al Green. Yeah. Pretty good song. Let's take a listen. Yeah, like you said, definitely probably one of his most famous and probably one of his best.
1: As we were discussing the similarity between High Records and Stax Records... I guess the, mo- the famous house band that came from Stax, as you were saying, they didn't last as long as high, but anyways, is the instrumental house band, Booker T and the MGs. And they were similar to the high rhythm section, very influential in shaping the Memphis soul sound. Differently, though, than the high rhythm section, they actually, of the of the uh, house bands we have listed, are probably the most famous, yeah. because they were one of the few that actually went out and produced... And wrote songs under their own name and weren't just behind the scenes for other artists. Right. But it's the that band is actually so famous that they were actually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992. That's cool. so. I don't know how many. I don't know how many of these house bands you could say were inducted.
0: Actually, can I bring up a point? Yes, I would agree that they're actually, that Booker T. and the MGs are definitely probably the most famous of all these bands that we're talking about today. So, yeah, would you, would you say that that's largely attributed to the fact that they released songs under their own name? I would you'd...
1: say I would say that's entirely attributed to that fact. Under, unlike a lot of these bands who, I mean, as we saw with the Funk Brothers, they didn't even get credited for 20 years that they were doing their work. Mm-hmm. Booker T kind of got out in front of that whole underlying an- anonymity and wrote their own stuff. I mean, they, uh, as I'm sure a lot of you know, they wrote the song in 1962, Green Onions, which totally put them on the map. And I think, I think they really did a good job Unlike some of these bands of kind of bucking that trend of being kind of the forgotten people of this, of this, I guess the sound that they were developing, like especially with the Memphis sound. Mm-hmm. And they did a good job of really kind of just putting themselves out there and saying like, look, we're a house band, but we make some kick-ass music. So why not produce our own stuff? You know, people can listen to instrumental songs yeah. they were basically an instrumental band. They, when they produced their own stuff, they didn't have bring singers in. It was just them.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, so. like, something like the Funk Brothers, for example, I mean, they're kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think the example of Booker T and the MGs, do you think they were a little bit more independent from Stax in the sense that they could release their own stuff? I, I don't know because, if they were... Really, I mean, I don't know how tied down some of these other bands were, that maybe they couldn't yeah, stuff. Yeah, I don't know
1: if they were, like, independent from Stax, because I, I'm sure they released their own albums through Stax, I mean, where else would they go? But I think possibly Stax Records was more understanding of their talent and kind of was just like, hey, you guys do all the backing for all these other artists we do. You know, we'll let you have some of that fame.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, really, that's the thing is, I'm, I'm curious, like, if any of these other bands who were basically the house bands for the studios, like, would the studios even let them release their own music? Would they... Maybe not, necessarily. Would they do it just to appease them, or would they not want their own house band to compete with the fame of these artists that they bring in
0: yeah actually i I, I hate to keep going back to the funk brothers at motown but i mean they're one of the more bigger ones they're Um, the biggest yeah right i mean something i've read multiple times with kind of the background of songs at motown is that that executives like barry gordy who was the president of motown for a long time he would often say you can't release this song for whatever because whether he just didn't like it or didn't think it was going to Be successful, And many times he was actually proven wrong, where either the song was recorded by someone else and was made very popular, or the original artist who wanted to release it was able to do so in a different way later on and became really popular. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe, I I have no idea, this is just speculation, but maybe people like him and other executives didn't necessarily want to waste time or money releasing stuff by just the Funk Brothers, because maybe they figured it wasn't going to be popular enough on its own. That that might have been a reason why the Funk Brothers, for example, might not have been able to release their own music.
1: Yeah. Getting back to Booker T and the MGs, on top of releasing their own instrumental album, they also did the backing for such famous singers as Wilson Pickett, Bill Withers, Sam and Dave, and Otis Redding. I actually first discovered that they were even a house band when I read that they did the backing for Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave. Hmm. Before that, I just thought, They were just some instrumental group that released some cool songs like Green Onions. No idea they were even a... It's funny because in researching them, I found out that MG actually stands for Memphis Group. Oh, really?
0: Oh, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So that's pretty crunchy.
0: That is pretty crunchy.
1: But yeah, as I'm I'm sure a lot of you know, they are very famous for their song Green Onions. But they actually had a lot of other hit singles. Uh, One of them being the song Hip Hug Her, which we can taste... We can taste we can taste it in our mouths. We can take a little listen to right now, and if you want, if you lick your monitor, you might be able to taste it.
0: That's not recommended. <laughs>
1: To see a little bit of that same Memphis sound as, as, as was with the backing for such songs here I am but it's got more of a it's got more of an upbeat tone than high rhythm section kind of developed it seems that like the between high rhythm section and Booker T they kind of although they both were influential in the Memphis sound kind of branched off where the rhythm section kind of stuck with the slower uh, slower pace stuff, for, like, sensual soul music, whereas Booker T kind of went the path of a little bit more faster-paced, upbeat stuff. Yeah. I mean, Bill Withers, most of his stuff is pretty slow, but especially Sam and Dave and some yeah. Wilson Fickett stuff, it's it's a little more fast-paced. Yeah. So maybe that was something they were more comfortable with.
0: Yeah, I can't actually, I can't really think of a Bill Withers song that's fast. That's yeah, fast. no, I... Not, not to say that he isn't fantastic, but... We,
1: to, we should totally try to get him to come on the show, because we watched that oh, yeah. documentary about him, being bill or something like that I don't no, remember. Still bill. still bill kill bill <laughs> no the documentary is still bill and he seemed like just the chillest guy ever i think he's residing in west virginia now just doing his own thing
0: yeah he's pretty cool yeah They should write him a letter <laughs> we should we should get him to work with us to make a new movie called bill kill where bill withers is a hitman and he goes <laughs> around killing people who told him along the way that he would never make it in the <laughs> music industry
1: that would be really awesome, actually.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he'd be on board. He can. He can team up with like Sean Connery, <laughs> just for the hell of it. Oh god. Anyway, <laughs> back to house bands. Another one that I found out about uh, was a group called the Memphis Boys at American Sound Studio. The Memphis Boys were also known as the Eight Two Seven Thomas Street Band, and I realized later that that's actually named after uh, the studio's street address. I read that the group recorded 122 top 10 hits between 1967 and 71. Wow. So what is that, like a three-, four-year period? mm mm-hmm. 122 top 10 hits? I mean, that's ridiculous. That's, that's 40 a year. Yeah. That's almost one per week for four years straight. I hope we're not doing math wrong. Here at Funk Radio, we don't know maths. <laughs> so the Memphis Boys, this group, they they have supported like really big-name artists, actually. At American Sound Studio, and this includes Elvis Presley, Neil Diamond, Dusty Springfield, and a bunch of others. And especially, which I found interesting, was that they actually helped push forward the career of Bobby Womack, one of the more famous solo legends, because at the time he was struggling as a solo artist, but he started to build his career, I guess, more when he was working with this group as a musician and as a songwriter. And I didn't know this, but actually he wrote, I want to say it was Wilson Pickett's I'm a Midnight Mover. Which is one of his most famous songs. So I didn't know that Bobby Womack wrote that. It's I always like learning that songs that I like by one artist are actually, you know, re- by another produced yeah. by another one that you like. It's kind of cool. A song I want to point out about the, with with this group Aretha Franklin's 1967 breakout single, which was called "I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You." Now this was the song that really uh, put her on the map. I don't know it's it's a, it's a good song. It's really interesting way of kind of introducing uh, Aretha Franklin's. Sound, but uh, let's take a listen to I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Yeah, pretty good song. I think it kind of exemplifies her more Southern slash gospel influence.
1: It's funny to see how, like you were saying before, these different uh, artists influenced each other, and really the Memphis Boys helped spark her career, and then obviously she went on to become the Queen of Soul. Yeah, and how also they helped spur the career of Bobby Womack. Who, it's it's interesting because if you look at it from an objective perspective, that rhymes. <laughs> um, if you look if you look at it from an objective perspective, uh, you can kind of draw the conclusion that a lot of these house bands really helped propel the careers of these famous artists just as much as the artists themselves, mm-hmm. if not sometimes more. It's like a symbiotic relationship of sorts where the artists can't uh, be successful without the house bands and the, the house bands become successful through the they artists.
0: Don't, yeah, I mean, they don't really have a job, basically, without the yeah, exactly. major they're, artists. Yeah, exactly. They're at the mercy of the artists, but the artists are simultaneously at the mercy of them. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, relationship there. So yeah, they weren't they weren't they were as big, but uh, definitely like we said, I mean, they influenced some of the most famous artists of all time, which is really cool. Okay, so another another one that's in the South cuz we've been talking a lot about uh, like Memphis Yeah, or, you know, Southern Soul sound. And another group was the Muscle Shoals Swampers who were at Fame Studios originally, but then they uh, later on moved to create their own studio actually called Muscle Shoals Sound Studio. But uh, they were based in the city of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, as you may have guessed. What I found interesting is that this group was actually made up of all white Southern members. Because really? I mean, yeah, because within kind of R and B soul, especially like the, the more Southern artists, I suppose the mostly I would say they're African American. But this, the the fact that this whole group was white, I, I found kind of interesting.
1: What's even more interesting about that fact is, from a historical standpoint, Alabama was one of the most conservative states, as far. The civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And I remember once the 64 Civil Rights Act passed, which got rid of segregation and allowed black students to actually go to previously all white schools. Mm-hmm. There was a, I think it was at Alabama State University, don't quote me, it was at a big state school. And black students were arriving to try to, you know, enter the school. And the governor of the state at the time actually stood in front of the school and with the state guard actually blocked them from being able to go inside. And mm-hmm. it kind of became a defining moment of the civil rights movement and the clash between p- the progressiveness of the movement and the staunch conservatism of the southern states at the time. So mm. the fact that during the time that this kind of stuff is going on, white performers are basically collaborating with famous black artists majoritarily is a big deal. Yeah. Sorry to totally go on like a random No, no, question, that's
0: but... interesting. Well, it's good to get some historical background. For sure. So anyway, the the Muscle Shoals Swampers performed with a number of artists, including Wilson Pickett and Aretha Franklin, who we actually mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. but also with the Staples Singers and Etta James and Clarence Carter. What's cool is that they actually were one of of the more popular songs that they supported was Percy Sledge's When a Man Loves a Woman, which is a really cool song. Let's actually take a listen to this. Actually, Kyle, something that yes. we talked about on our old show about this song was that is isn't it true that Percy Sledge actually made up most I, uh, of the lyrics? He, yeah, he improvised the lyrics. Yeah, of the song. he
1: basically had like a concept going, but like when he recorded he basically had nothing written, so he kinda just made it up as he went along.
0: And but he had the became, music written, right? Or he he had, had the music
1: it, written but he made it he fit the lyrics to the music basically as he was performing.
0: Yeah, and didn't, didn't people like assume song. that he had? Yeah, people assumed the song beforehand, but I guess he kind of just made it up as no, he No,
1: people had assumed like you know, wow, this is really, you re- this, these are these lyrics are really good, and he basically just, I believe he like originally thought up the concept of the song while sitting on the toilet, and then. Oh then went,
0: yeah, you're right. Worked. I forgot about that.
1: Yeah, he basically had like a chorus and the title when a man loves a woman, but not much else, and then they wrote the music, and he's like, oh. I got to sing I got to sing to this.
0: For some reason I just imagine him sitting in a in a bathroom stall and all of a sudden just like bursting out into song <laughs> and love a woman when he singing.
1: That would be amazing. <laughs> that would be very awkward for anyone in the bathroom with him. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the last house band of our series, I guess that we're going on here. We're going to move back from the south up to Philadelphia, which obviously is famous for its Philly sound. There was a famous house band that played with Sigma Sound Studios, which is arguably the most famous studio in Philadelphia. The band was called MFSB, which stands for Mother Father Sister Brother. Don't know why.
0: Actually, you know why? Um, I remember. I don't. I didn't uh, look it up recently, but I remember reading at some point that there was actually speculation whether it, it was that, or there was actually reports of members of the band saying that it actually stood for mother and son of a b <laughs> oh to, well, to kind of put it lightly
1: um, I, I can see how that would be controversial <laughs> which is
0: i think i'm trying to remember i think they said the reason it would have been called that was if someone was playing uh really well they'd be like yeah he's playing like a like a mother F and you know <laughs> so that, that that would be a reason why it would actually stand for that now whether it it stands for that, or mother, father, sister, brother. I mean, I don't think... I didn't mention
1: I didn't mention it before, but with Booker T and the MGs, there was speculation that eventually was settled that initially the band, the MG, stood for their producer-owned... I guess there was a car in the 70s. I don't remember what brand that was called, like the MG. Oh, it was a like, type um, of car. Type of car, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and he spread the rumor that they named the band after his car.
0: But then um, you said that it was actually... Uh, But then,
1: yeah, I I believe there was an interview that was conducted with Mr. Book T with NPR and he said that it stood for uh, Memphis. Memphis group. It's funny how, at least with two of these bands, there's like speculation as to what their name even stands for. It just shows more the the anonymity, I guess, of these groups. Yeah. And how people don't really fully understand them.
0: Yeah.
1: Continuing forward, as we were saying before, they were the house band with the Sigma Sound Studios. And they were basically kind of the originators of that
0: smooth... uh, I thought they were at uh, Philadelphia International. I don't know. Maybe they moved there, but... Maybe Sigma was... I mean, you can keep talking. when you look it up.
1: Okay. But yeah, they were one of the originators of the sort of smooth Philly sound that helped dominate the genre, especially in the northern region in the 1970s. In 1972, they actually began recording as a named act. They called themselves T-S-O-P, that stood for the Sound of Philadelphia. And... They recorded a song called The Sound of Philadelphia, (laughs) which is actually most famous as being the uh, intro song to the popular dance show Soul Train.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: And that was their theme song. And that obviously put them on the map. The song was released in 1974, peaked at number one on the Billboard Pop and R&B charts. And it was really one of the first songs that was influential in establishing the disco sound. Because, as many of you know, Soul Train, although being called Soul, kind of helped propagate disco because it was a dance-themed and uh, a dance and performance-themed show. Right. On top of releasing this single under that moniker, they actually also backed up subgroups as Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the OJ's, Stylistics, the Spinners, Wilson Pickett, and also from Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Teddy Pendergrass. Mm-hmm. So. Did you end up finding out if they moved to...
0: Yeah, actually, uh, I don't know whether... I, I mean, you said that they were at uh, Sigma Sound Studios, which I guess must be true. But I'm reading that the Sigma was actually really strongly associated with Philadelphia International. So whether they were they worked for both or whether they were just really... They had a lot of connections, I guess. I don't know. But it sounds like they were pretty, uh, pretty closely linked together, so...
1: Interesting tidbit as I'm looking myself here. It says when they were at Sigma, due to a disagreement between Gamble and Huff, who were famous originators of the studio, uh, over finances, I guess a bunch of the members of the MFSB group moved to Sal Soul Records,
0: oh, where yeah. they became
1: known as the Sal Soul Orchestra.
0: Hmm. And
1: then other members began por- oh. performing as individual groups like the Richie family, John Davis and the Monster Orchestra. So.
0: I've heard of the Celso the Orchestra. I didn't realize that they, that was kind of an offshoot of MFSB. That's kind of cool.
1: Because undoubtedly, the song, The Sound of Philadelphia, is their most famous production because it was similar to uh, Booker T and the MGs. It was just them, nobody else. Let's take a listen to that song so you can kind of see what they sound like.
0: If you know kind of what the, some of the more defining elements of the Philadelphia soul sound are, I mean, if you kind of just compare it to groups like the O.J.'s or Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, you kind of get that same that same sound, I guess. Just on a personal note, though, the sound of Philadelphia, that's actually probably probably in my top five, I would say, songs of all time. Really? Yeah, I really like that song. It's really fun.
1: Even though it's instrumental?
0: Yeah, but uh, it's it's really upbeat and fun.
1: Have you ever caught any episodes of Soul Train? Is that where you first
0: heard it? No, I actually didn't know it was on Soul Train until a little while after discovering the song. I've seen clips of Soul Train. I don't think I've watched whole episodes. But but yeah, uh,
1: I guess that kind of concludes our discussion because these are like the six most famous house bands that we, in our researching and digging, kind of came up with. I'm sure, obviously, there are others. I'm sure even within these studios, there were others. It's just that these six seem to be the ones that produced the most consistent hits Mm -hmm. with different famous artists. Yeah, I guess overarching message of this thing regarding these bands is just how influential they were and how unnoticed they went. Yeah, Especially in the 70s, let alone today, they kind of faded into the annals of history as just nobody knew who they were.
0: Well, for example, Booker T and the MGs, and probably to some extent MFSB, they were able to make a name for themselves by releasing uh, songs under their own name. Indeed. And groups like the Funk Brothers, who, with with the documentary that came out, I want to say, within the last five years, that they were able to finally get some recognition as well. Because, I mean, people just don't know who they are. But once they learn about it, they say, that's really cool. And we all all hope that you think it's pretty cool now that you listen to this show. Yeah,
1: I hope these guys actually at least got paid well for what they did. (laughs) Because on top of, you know, relinquishing all fame... If they got like paid penance just like I mean it just if that was true that just showed how completely uh, passionate they were about music to be able to just you know do it and not do it for the money or not do it for the fame
0: right so well, I mean obviously they didn't do it for the fame.
1: Yeah obviously many of the, many of these guys did not do this for fame
0: yeah but it must it must be cool even even if you aren't necessarily recognized by the masses to know that for example like standing in the in the shadow of Motown, I mean, the, the Funk Brothers were sitting around talking. I mean, they were basically saying, like, yeah, I mean, this group of people here, we were the ones who basically defined music for, you know, a whole decade, basically. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of interesting that there are people who you can really pinpoint that to, whether or not people actually generally know them.
1: It's, it's cool, though, because now that I see the connection between these artists and performers and just how much of a community there was within this genre, How how studios supported each other and artists supported each other. Yeah, it's kind of refreshing to see. Yeah. So, Mister Peter, is there anything outside of the world of funk and soul that we
0: that you would like to discuss? I don't think so.
1: Well, if you're not going to toot your own horn, then I will, Mister Peter. (laughs) You're
0: going to toot my own horn. I'm going to toot your horn, Peter. (laughs) That doesn't Um, sound
1: comfortable. (laughs) It won't be. Trust me. Mister Peter here got himself a job.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm employed now, which is cool. But hopefully yes. this will not affect the the frequency and quality of. I don't the think it will. I mean,
1: at the very, at the at the worst, we do them in the evening or we do one on
0: the weekend and one. I mean, we day. we I mean that's when we do them half the time anyway. So yeah, exactly. And it'll be a fun thing
1: to come home to. You can come home after a hard day's work and then talk about funk with me and hear my voice. That's true. And I will make you pot pies.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> And you listeners can continue to listen to us, whether at home or in the car in your commute or however it is that you listen to us. Assuming that people listen to us. (laughs) As always, we encourage you to like us on Facebook and also subscribe to us on iTunes. Don't forget
1: to comment and rate us on iTunes because we get kind of bumped up as far as visibility. Mm
0: -hmm. And also on Facebook, if you ever have ideas for future episodes... Be sure to let us know, or if you have other suggestions for the show in general, or just want to say hi. We're always happy to say hi.
1: Okay, so yeah, this has been Kyle, one of your DJ slash hosts.
0: And this has been Peter, the other DJ slash host of this Funk Radio show. We hope you've enjoyed Funk Radio. Tune in next time for your favorite funky hits. Bye, we love you. Goodbye. podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit
1: 8thCircuit.com.